Are you ready to begin? I am. Hey, this is Sad Girl Syllabus, a commentary on media through the ages with some sad girl takes. Each season, we'll have a new syllabus to dive into. I'm Bethany. And I'm Mary. We're two girls. Too sad. <laughs> Let's jump into the syllabus. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is a survey of Gothic literature this first season. And all things Gothic lit. And this is our first episode, our pilot episode, which is the Weathering Heights to Twilight Pipeline. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think just to not get too far into it, Gothic lit being... I feel the ultimate sad girl genre um, kind of really starts us off right. Not to get too far into it, but a little bit about what is Gothic literature. It's a genre of literature really at the peak in the late 1700s, um, probably most known for the romantic authors that participated in it and people like Anne Radcliffe and the Mysteries of Udolpho, which came out at the end of the 1700s. But today we're actually talking about sort of the Victorian Gothic with Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Um, so it's a little bit of later inspired by those original Gothic lit in English literature. Um, but it's also, I feel like probably one of the most relevant books uh, still on anything Gothic or Gothic romantic today. Um, do you want to do a quick synopsis of Wuthering Heights before we fully get into like what yeah. we want to talk about? Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah, thanks for that history too. I'm not, um, uh, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I was like speed reading. I started reading for, for this, I started reading Wuthering Heights like two days ago and yes. uh, I was just okay. like <laughs> obsessively <laughs> all weathering. Yeah, so I guess so <laughs> it starts out and with just two kids, like this family adopts a little boy who is ostensibly, is he black or is he like sort of Middle Eastern? It's unclear. They, um, I feel like they speculate a lot in the book. Yeah. Uh, if he's Roma, if he's, oh, you yeah. know, Indian, Indian descent, uh, unclear. Yeah. Um, but he's, it seemingly is not white. And I guess, um, I guess he, he must be Romani or Roma because they mm -hmm. keep saying gypsy. So I guess that's the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and to me, it was always like an issue. What rubbed me the wrong way more so than like, I mean, I guess when I read anything in the 19th century and earlier, I always like sort of expect there to be like very racist undertones. Yeah. In all the language, but like <laughs> in every movie adaptation, he's a white guy is cast as Heathcliff and that to me feels like a colorblind thing like movie production people are just like we don't see color like you know yeah. they're like glossing over this whole anyway but it's a huge part of the book I think there's one adaptation that I haven't watched where he's mm. played by I believe um a black actor mm. but that is the only one I've seen yeah, yeah that's it's always like I don't know it's very well anyway the back to the synopsis. <laughs> it's like it's it is the the race of this little boy is very prominent and there's also a lot of like identification between his race and his uh like dark brooding spirit yeah um but 
yeah, so this family, this father, the patriarch of a family adopts this little boy who he calls a gypsy. And then his youngest daughter, Catherine, and the boy who is named Heathcliff, like have a strike up a friendship. I guess, I guess the assumption is that they are immediately, they have chemistry immediately. Right. Soulmates. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that like, I sort of noticed is like the book it's like double narrator it's like the narrators are like nested and um and like there's a lot of narrators (laughs) yeah it starts out which is it it's interesting it just like starts out as like um uh this guy who is like renting from Heathcliff like you Ah. yeah um and he is sort of just like what's the deal with this guy why is he such a brooding man which is a hallmark of gothic literature he's like one the mysterious male, yeah. yeah the male characters one of them is like always brooding anyway so yeah so uh why don't you take it away from <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so it's the story in the first half of the narrator mostly he he finds like this info through multiple sources but mostly being told by a servant who's worked um at these two houses out in the countryside um, one of which is Wuthering Heights, uh, where the t- where Kathy and Heathcliff grew up together, um, and were tortured by uh, Kathy's older brother, <laughs> um, especially after um, their father dies and Kathy's older brother inherits the house. Um, so he sort of tortures Heathcliff really because um, he hates him so much. Kathy. And Heathcliff, yeah, have this inseparable bond where they're like more than soulmates. Um, it's she a very, says like, that their souls yeah. are made of the same thing. Yeah, and that they are one another, like they are each other's souls. It's um, intense. Uh, but Kathy, it's grows an attraction to the neighboring boy, um, Linton, Edgar Linton. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who lives in the other house. They're like basically just out on the moors, these two houses, totally alone have been that way for seemingly centuries. Um, attraction to him, eventually agrees to marry him. Um, he's sort of the foil to Heathcliff and that he's the upstanding um, sort of gentleman. And, and he's kind happy. Yes, yes, he's, um, he smiles. Uh, <laughs> Versus Heathcliff, who never does, and is only nice to Kathy. Um, Heathcliff finds out out he leaves uh, for years. Um, in the meantime, what Kathy's brother has a kid. Uh, his wife dies. He descends into alcoholism, alcoholism, and finally Heathcliff returns. And then he marries Edgar Linton's sister, and right. it gets really, and that's where like the incest. <laughs> It's not yes, really, explicitly yeah. incest, I guess, or I guess it's not incest by definition, but it is pretty we- fucking weird. Okay. It's really weird. And <laughs> I think you can pass. Uh, it gets really weird. And it also gets, um, well, they do mention that both of those families have been marrying cousins forever. That's who they marry. They marry their cousins. <laughs> I was like, how, from where? You seemingly are all alone out there on the moor. <laughs> Where are these cousins coming from? But yeah, seclusion is-, <laughs> is a big is a big part of it. It's like Wuthering Heights and Thrushcross Grange. Thrushcross also like 
it I kept thinking like thrush like a yeast infection <laughs> anyway but that's the other that's the neighboring estate yes. thrush grass but uh yeah there, that's like a big part of it is like the seclusion and like the time that it takes to um travel between the two like it seems like they're the only houses for miles and so it's right. yeah like where where are all these cousins coming from but <sighs> great question and um Never answered, but <laughs> anyways, um, so Heathcliff's basically enacting this plan of revenge on Linton and, and on Kathy's older brother, who he is out to get. Um, not necessarily on Kathy. He's fine with her sort of being married to another man as long as he's in her life, but he is trying to like just dominate both of them. And when he comes back, he's mysterious, wealthy. He he marries Isabella, and that sends Kathy into a spiral, <laughs> a spiral <laughs> that will eventually kill her. Yes, yes, and she yeah dies of a broken heart, and like mm -hmm. she becomes really sickly, and like, uh, and then and then they both are just Catherine and Heathcliff both just like sort of spiral about like how like they are each other's murderers. Yeah, and um. And, and we'll haunt each yeah. other from the grave. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, he makes a big a big point to like, but he sort of demands Heathcliff demands that of Catherine. He's like, you better come back and haunt me. And um and then and she ostensibly does. Yeah. And yeah, even up to I mean, so yeah, basically like also does Catherine die in childbirth? Yes, yeah, so she okay, she right. she gives birth to a daughter who is also named Catherine. Um, <laughs> Kathy too, as I like to call her. Um, <laughs> Kathy the second. She gives birth to a daughter, um, and Isabella Heathcliff's wife gives birth to a son, and she runs away to London with the son for a bit. Yeah, until she Isabella, also dies. <laughs> Isabella hates Heathcliff and she's just like, you people are crazy. Right. Um, yeah. So there's like a new generation of Kathy's kid, um, Heathcliff's kid, and then Henley, Kathy's brother's kid, who is essentially after um, Henley also dies, he kind of just has been a wreck. When Heathcliff comes back, Heathcliff just takes total control of him. Um, and and specifically like keeps him there's there's an interesting power dynamic because Heathcliff is after the wealth of Wuthering Heights and the wealth of the the Earnshaws which is Catherine's right. surname and um and when Hareton who is Hinley's oh my god that this is like the worst part of all too many of all the uh like 19th century literature it's just like there's so many family members um <laughs> It's this way. It's and they this, all have like H names or L names. Right, it's just, right. It's the same with like Anna Karenina and like like the books yeah. where you have to like memorize the cast of characters. Um, but yeah, Heathcliff like keeps Hareton. He doesn't give him an education. He make, He's not really literate. He doesn't really, he's- He's, he's a little feral. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he's and like he's sort been of, raised by no one. Right, apart from like the farmer who like keeps the grounds who is also presumably illiterate and like only knows Bible stories and stuff like that. Like it's very much like a class thing. 
and mm-hmm. Heathcliff is trying to keep him keep him down. Um, but yeah, so then the Kathy dies pretty much at the right, the middle part of the book. She dies like right in the middle. And so then the story is picked up with the second generation. Um, and Kathy the second, <laughs> who is, and the differentiator, I guess, is there's Catherine and then there's Kathy. Yeah. Kathy yeah. is her daughter. And so then the story sort of follows Kathy and how she is brought up not ever really being allowed to venture across into Wuthering Heights. And then eventually when she does just like find herself there, she um, uh, like Heathcliff is like super gaslighty to everybody. Cause he's just like, I never hate, I didn't hate your dad. Like he, like Heathcliff is like lures Kathy in and Me? he's just like, no, this <laughs> nice is great. Start. Like I knew your mom, <laughs> like <laughs> it's like a weird, he, he is super gaslighty in that, at that part. Um, and he is very friendly to Kathy, Kathy. And she's just like really, uh, um, just um interested in in every she's very curious about everything and um and then Isabella who's been living in London dies and so Linton Heathcliff and Isabella's son comes back to live with Heathcliff at Wuthering Heights and Kathy is really uh curious and also enamored with him because of she's been living her she's been brought up as like a as an only child and it's just her and her uh, and Nellie, her nurse and governess and her dad. And so she like, hasn't really encountered boys. <laughs> she hasn't yeah. really encountered anybody her own age. So she's like really obsessed with Linton. Linton arrives at Wuthering Heights and he's like really sickly. He's like very uh, pale. He also like everybody is just being raised in um, hell. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. It was just the worst. No one has a nice life or like a, a good home life at all. Um, no matter where they go, seemingly, you think it's just Wuthering Heights, but actually it's everywhere. London too. Um, yeah. So he arrives, she's taken with him. They start up a correspondence. Um, and Eventually, it is all revealed to be Heathcliff's great plan to <laughs> trap Kathy into a marriage with his son so that he can again take over her dad's house. Just it's, in, yeah, yeah. Um, they he does force them to marriage to marry. He traps her in the house um, to marry his son, um, which they do. But Linton is, again, um, not doing well, and he soon dies. Um, so Kathy is kind of just at forced to stay at Wuthering Heights forever. Because Heathcliff cheats her out of Linton's, uh, in, like, what Linton's wealth, basically. Anything that yeah. Linton has, um, he, like, tried to bequeath, he would have bequeathed things to Kathy, his wife, but Heathcliff does this like scheme of like talking him, convincing him to to bequeath everything back to Heathcliff, back to his dad. And so then so, yeah, Kathy has yeah. to go there. And since Kathy's dad has died, um oh, right, yeah. Heathcliff now also owns uh the Linton's house. So he now owns Thrushcross Grange too, which is when the narrator comes in, um he's bo- he's boarding at renting the, that house and 
now realizes how Heathcliff came to own it was just like through tricks. So he leaves for a little bit because he's grossed out um, and then comes back. <laughs> See how everybody's doing because he is a gossip hound and wants to know more. Um, <laughs> and then he, yeah, and then he finds out that Heathcliff, Heathcliff dies. And we don't really, Heathcliff dies in like, I guess, so the, the first narrator, the meta narrator who is renting Thrushcross Grange and who's like trying to figure out what is Heathcliff's story, he asks Nellie, the uh, like maid and housekeeper, and then Nellie narrates the entire story. But, mm -hmm. um, cause she took care of Catherine and Kathy. And then she's like also somewhat trapped between Wuthering Heights and Thrushcross. But um, Nellie recounts the story of Heathcliff's death as she calls it a queer ending and she uh and I guess like Heathcliff pretty much like saw Catherine's ghost from what I can gather because he said he's like the night that he dies he's like is someone here he's like are we alone and Nellie's like yeah. I think so <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's just Cat yeah. singing the Kate Bush song and the narrator Lockwood um um the narrator also possibly saw Kathy's ghost um, right at Wuthering Heights and um, which at the very beginning of the novel when he first meets Heathcliff um, and he sees Heathcliff break down and start sobbing for Kathy to haunt him and to come back. Um, but yeah, it seems that Heathcliff had been getting more and more obsessed with um, finding this ghost of Kathy or reconnecting with Kathy and he's wandering the moors at night um, just doing who knows what, digging up graves and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, he passes. Um, Kathy and Harrington fall fall in love, get oh, married. Yeah, yeah, Hindley. Or son. soon to be get married. Yes, and um, they're moving to out of Wuthering Heights to Thrushcross Grange. So, and that's how the novel ends. They don't even escape the bubble. No. They they moved four miles away. <laughs> Um, and if that synopsis uh, seemed uh, <laughs> long and really, I know I was like, let's do it quick. <laughs> I wonder if it'll uh, be edited. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, but it, in case you missed it in high school, that's what happens. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that book. And that's also why it was so hard to follow in high school. Yeah. Um, I had a t yeah. I I, uh, I read this in seventh grade not uh, like it was like my choice like I don't know it was weird like my mom sort of like wanted me to read it my mom it's my mom's favorite book I think um and I read it in seventh grade for like a book report or something but of course I like, didn't I didn't comprehend any of it and uh, the only thing that I can remember is uh after I had done this assignment I was I really wanted to watch the film adaptation with Ray Fine and I think it's Juliette Binoche and um that's so it's hella dramatic and it was like a three-day weekend I don't know it was like President's Day or something Martin Luther King Day maybe and um my mom also I had a doctor's appointment I had to get my meningitis vaccine and I, I was like very I was afraid of vaccines when I was <laughs> when I was uh younger and I was just like I um I was like afraid that I was like gonna get meningitis and yeah. I was afraid of like any sort of uh, that day I, I had like a bad headache. I started feeling like a little bit, I don't know. I did have symptoms, 
Um, but it wasn't anything serious, of course, but I was like blowing it out of proportion. And um, I was so emotionally overwhelmed from my own like medical anxiety that when we were watching the film and like Ray Fine, there's a part where he's like, Heathcliff is sitting over Catherine's casket and he like hugs her and I just like burst into tears. And I was so, <laughs> I was so overcome with emotion. And I think that like, I really, I really loved Wuthering Heights as like a teenager, high schooler. And I think that I only loved it because I just like have this uh, memory of being like very emotionally overwhelmed, but. I think I read it in high school, um, signed, um, and I hated it. I remember <laughs> that I really did not like it. And I really liked Jane Eyre, which I think oh, I read on my own time. Um, and so I guess I thought it was going to be like Junior, which it is kind of, but very different. Um, it's and then I sad girl literature. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and then I had to read it again in college. And then I was like, oh, I actually do like this. It's really funny. <laughs> so dramatic. Um, everyone in this book is awful. Yeah, everyone's a bitch. Everyone. That's what you said. Everyone is a bitch. <laughs> I mean, like, who would you say is the bitchiest character? Well, I guess there's like different uh, tiers or levels of bitch. Like, there's like, there's like little bitch, like a little like simpy, like kind of right. always whining. I would say that I would say that Catherine's husband is a little bitch because he's yeah. just like kind of he's just like I don't know. He's not really uh, he doesn't really do anything for me at least, like he doesn't really have passions. <laughs> I would, uh, Heathcliff is a bitch for being so um, brooding and awful, but right. I, at the same time, I also have sympathy for Heathcliff because at least he like has passion. Yeah. I mean, I don't um, really, I don't really have sympathy for any of them actually, but. <laughs> I know it's actually like, it's kind of hard to, I think it's because it's told through like a double narration. Um, yeah, you, yeah, there's, you have like the projection of, um, that's something that I like, I wanted to unpack too, is yeah. like, you, you have, there's like, there are so many books, I feel like, but then when I, I was like, there's so many books that have this like, meta narrator, but then when I actually had to think about it, I, I could only think of like, two. Uh, <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, of more books that have this, as an example is like hard evidence, but like The Great Gatsby, Nick is the narrator who is just mm -hmm. like looking in on this whole universe of people, of characters. And you have, and, and like the narrator always projects a certain reality and a certain coloring onto everything. Um, and so, and yet Wuthering Heights gets like, like Lockwood is the, the meta narrator where he's just like, whoa, what did I step into? This is kind of really freaking me out. And then you, and then he asks the housekeeper to tell her rendition of the story. And so, um, and she's just like, yeah, Heathcliff was a little dick the whole time. Like he was, he was a grumpy little kid and, um, and Catherine was obsessed with him, all this stuff. But like, what would the story be like from Heathcliff's right. vantage point? Well, cause it's supposed to be sort, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a love story because it's not, well, it's not really like like a, a romantic right. love story like you typically have. In fact, they seem occasionally really antagonistic towards each other. It's obsessive. Yeah. It's, you know, like it, it's not love. It's something else. Um, maybe something more. 
Um, <laughs> uh, it's faded. Yeah, um, faded. Yeah. But you don't feel, I feel like the Heathcliff character, and we can get into this more later, but this sort of Byronic hero, right? Um, but especially Heathcliff, where he's out for vengeance it, to some degree, he's been wronged, um, and he's cruel like just a really cruel sort of sadistic um, character. I think you actually do see that in other romance novels at the very least, but in other types, but you see it from the vantage point of maybe someone who's closer to him, who has some kindness to them, or is the one person they're not like that to. So like you see, him from Kathy's perspective. And in this book, you only get Kathy's perspective when she's telling it to Nellie, who's then telling it to the narrator. And it's hard to tell how skewed it is um, at that point because yeah. Nellie has definitely some bias. She hates Kathy or Catherine, um, <laughs> hates her. Also maybe has a kind of a thing for her husband. I mean, it was like, Sometimes oh, I did. I didn't pick that up, but I no. guess I all there were many things that I didn't pick up, but because I was just like, there's me. But it just is like largely like it's hard to feel any sympathy, yeah, to most of these characters, maybe the younger generation a bit. Um, mm -hmm. but there's really just like no one that you, I don't know, I wasn't very worried about them most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> she's like is Catherine gonna die yeah I guess she's like dead. she's definitely gonna die uh, uh I would say though back to my my question I think the biggest bitch in this book <laughs> is the narrator it drives me crazy <laughs> wait which narrator <laughs> Lockwood Lockwood he's so oh my god shut up <laughs> Um, why, why do you think he's the biggest bitch? He's super gossipy. <laughs> and he's, he's always just like, oh, but I hope like, you know, like I want them to think good of me, but he's just slimy, bitch. And he's always like getting locked out and stuck in the rain, which is really funny. That happens to see him like twice. <laughs> um, I, I like that. Yeah. He's, he's like an annoying tenant. I, I like that. Or I can I can see that, yeah. Um. Just kind of I guess he's kind of just a limp and yeah is annoying about it. Which is why I don't like Linton Edgar Linton. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's the same. Uh, I was gonna say that uh, <laughs> lost it, <laughs> lost it. Okay, that'll be out. <laughs> Well, I think this does relate to, I know something you were thinking about, like the Byronic hero, Heathcliff, is sort of the singular figure in mm -hmm. the novel and is very much like the narrator is a foil to him um, as even in like sort of masculine stereotypes, I would say, mm -hmm. like that's mm -hmm. a big part of the book. 
the Byronic hero is someone who I guess is like, is brooding also. And is, um, yeah, as you say, like singular and seems to be the center of the, the center of the universe for the nar narrative. And being the center of the universe means that like things just like sort of happen to you. Things are sort of like, your life is dramatic and you have like, there's, mis there's mystery around your life. Things have happened to you in the past. Um, which I did finally, my memory did finally jog. The thing that I was going to say was that um, uh, you would think that you would have more sympathy for Heathcliff given that uh, he was an orphan and like an orphan found on the streets and stuff. And so it's just very much um, a product of of the voice of Nellie, who she's just yeah. like, he's disgusting and and probably like, like, yeah, it's, I am surprised that there's not more sympathy from the rest of the characters for this orphan boy, but it's probably because of like race yeah. maybe, but, um, and, and like not like thinking that a little orphan Romani boy is not anything to, to care about. But anyway, as part of this Byronic hero, like their backstory is usually something like they came from nothing. I mean, I also think about the great Gatsby um, as well. And like, and he's sort of a Byronic hero where he's kind of like in his feels about Daisy. And he also had a mysterious upbringing, came from sort of nothing maybe you think. Um, and so everything is sort of happening to them. And so what I was wondering about was like the foil to the Byronic hero, is it the narrator? I called it the sad boy narrator. And like, because the sad boy narrator is like the person who had a very average normal upbringing and is just kind of like observing the most interesting thing that'll ever happen to the sad boy narrator is that he observes what's right. going on. And so I think that that is like an, their opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And well, almost everyone kind of, yeah, I think is like Heathcliff is sort of, I think this is kind of goes with the Byronic hero is a little superhuman in some regards. Um, he, is very mysterious, right? He comes back with all of this mysterious money, which I think you presume, obviously he did something bad to get it. Um, <laughs> uh, but he also like all of the other men, at least in the book have these very huge failings um, in terms of, I think like very masculine qualities, right? Or they're seen as frail, they um, are, are not, you know, like uh, athletic, very yeah. like that, that's a huge part of it. Um, they can't handle the weather. They can't handle the terrain of the moors. That's huge. Like they always yeah. dying out there on the moors, um, but Heathcliff can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only thing that brings Heathcliff down is a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Who he wants to bring him down, you know, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, so he is kind of like, you see some of, I think you see Heathcliff, I, I kind of wonder at the intentions of writing Heathcliff in a certain way, if you're supposed to view him in a romantic light as this sort of anti-hero, but also like, you know, a, um, kind of the qualities that you want also in a man versus these sort of more traditional English gentlemen who are sort of mocked in this book, I think. 
yeah for the most part um that's kind of curious to me I don't know I I just feel like Heathcliff is like brought up to be both villain and he's both villain and hero kind of I guess yeah yeah which is that also um like I wonder then does Byronic hero cross like gothic literature are are all the people in gothic literature the, the byronic are are all the males who fit that is the byronic hero and gothic literature like forever linked or inextricably linked i guess not wait it's that all byronic heroes are in gothic literature not all gothic literature includes byronic <laughs> hero <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Might be true. I think you get, at least now, I, I would say, like, if you have a sort of Byronic hero, he's definitely informed by Heathcliff and probably by Rochester in January. Right, right. And then, and then, but it keeps happening. It keeps happening all the way up to Twilight. In Twilight, right. Edward Cullen is definitely an attempt at a Byronic hero. <laughs> It's an attempt. <laughs> so I think you lose. Well, we won't get too far into it. Um, but, you know, Heathcliff's like very charismatic. <laughs> I don't think that's true for Twilight. That's, so I mean, when I, I read Twilight. Okay, so yeah, so I read Wuthering Heights when I was like 13. But then I read Twilight two years later as, a, as like a sophomore in, in high school. And I loved Ed Edward. I did too. I yeah, did too. It, I, I drew me in I think, very much. I must have read it at the same time you did. Um, I guess we all were reading them at the same time. Um, but, <laughs> but since you and I are born very close apart, like a week apart, we were probably definitely reading it at the same time. We were reading at the same time. The same um, age. <laughs> I did too. But again, I think you still have that you're basically being told about Edward from Bella's perspective. So yeah, he's, yeah, that's he true. is very attractive and exciting, but sometimes you get other people's perspectives when you're like, you like, they're like, he sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you only get the, he sucks in one of yeah. 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 And this is also another reason why I think that the sad boy narrator is always the foil um, because you would never, you would never hear the story from Heathcliff's vantage point and you would never right. hear, um, like people will try to make spinoffs. I think like, like now in the, uh, 21st century, the late 20th century and early 21st, like there's always these sort of like spinoffs because like whatever stories are like, there are no more original stories, but, um, <laughs> Like people will try to write Jane Eyre from Rochester's perspective. I think that right. was a, that was a book, and I'm sure that people have tried to make adaptations of Wuthering Heights from Heathcliff's perspective. But like the literature that that like birthed these genres, you will never hear it from the perspective of the hero himself. It's always going to be an observer, and which that's also interesting to me. Um, that like, uh, well, I guess you can't because that would that would uh, 
separate it would like it would tease out the mystery and there would be no mystery right. and you wouldn't the the hero falls apart if he's telling his own story yeah and a, a good chunk i think of gothic literature in general which i guess i probably should preface this with um rests on this sort of mystery that doesn't necessarily need to be solved right like it's more of a yeah. environment, it's more of a vibe, it's more of just the atmosphere of the book than anything else. Of yeah. Maybe there are ghosts, I don't know, we're not gonna talk about it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, That's that was another thing that struck me too. I was like, this is basically just vibes. Mm -hmm. Like there's, <laughs> there's no, nothing is, cause I was surprised that there was, I was like, nothing really happened. It's right. just, it's just like the sort of, and the other thing that's interesting to me is like then the, the film adaptations. The film adaptations of Gothic literature to me are what, I don't know, there's something that's like really, uh, there's something that's really weird about like, like the books themselves are just kind of like vibey and you just kind of like, you're reading it. And sometimes for me at least, I mean, I don't know, I have, I'm like ADD brain, like I can't, if, if I'm just like sitting and reading these books, I'm just like, nothing is happening. What What's right. going on? Uh, but then the film adaptations appeal to me because there's a lot of like, uh, like the director, the actors, they all like infuse it with their own um, sort of, uh, like they manage to tease out some of these vibes and can make it really compelling and they fill it with passion and whatever. Um, but yeah, film film adaptations, like you have music that goes along with it. You have people's like, the like unspoken expressions. I have a really hard time when I'm reading literature like this, where they're just like his brow furrowed and all this. And I have, <laughs> I personally just like have problems where I'm just like, I can't, what? But if I watch, if I watch Ray Fine, yeah. I get. <laughs> I can see his brow furrow all day long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, uh, should we get to the, speaking of film adaptations? <laughs> We wanted to talk about the MTV adaptation. <laughs> Which, yeah. Yeah, 2003 MTV adaptation. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is a movie that was made. Um, <laughs> uh, I, it, it appears that they tried to go for the OC meets Wuthering Heights. Um, <laughs> MX, MXPX does a cameo. They have a song for it and they sing in the movie. Um, it has stars like the older brother from Malcolm in the Middle. Catherine Heigl is, is Isabella. <laughs> there were so many people that I was trying to identify that I was like, wait, oh, no, that's they that go person. too fast. Yeah, that was the thing about that trailer. So I didn't even know that MTV made an adaptation until you told me about it like two days ago. And then yeah. I watched and then I watched the trailer like, you know, an hour and a half before we started this. <laughs> and I, oh my God, I fully, I was just like, within the first two seconds, literally the two seconds, I was just like, no, <laughs> like I couldn't handle it. Um, I didn't want it to be a thing. Um, and that was the, but the other thing about it, yeah, it goes really fast. It's like a huge like montage. And in some respects, I was just like, wow, actually that could be the whole thing. Like just, just that montage. trailer is is yeah. the whole book, which is 
goes back to it being a vibe. It's like not actually a story. It's just a vibe. But like there's that that trailer is full of so much angst. And it's like the thing about the MTV version adapted it to present the present times, right, 2003. Right. It's like very, very post-grunge, kind of grunge, kind of post-grunge, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana <laughs> type. Well, maybe more Smashing Pumpkins than Nirvana, but... <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's so it's so 90s grunge angsty and it's just like people that whole trailer is just people like screaming which then is what is what made me think as i was watching it i was just like yeah this is the entire story this is the whole book just people just people screaming "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) like just (laughs) angst all the time whereas like but with the with the ray fine juliette binoche version like that i mean i don't know if i were to watch that again now as like a 29 year old, as opposed to like a 13 year old who is just like having anxiety about a vaccine. Um, <laughs> like maybe I wouldn't think that it was so great, but like, I just have this, it felt really timeless. Like they can, they conveyed a lot of like passion and deep emotion. And they were, that adaptation was able to uh, portray that. Whereas like the 2000, the MTV version 2003, wasn't able to didn't really do that for me it was it was too sure? much <laughs> well and also i only watched the trailer so i guess uh, i mean you can watch it again <laughs> you can watch that like... trailer all day <laughs> it is just yelling it is just multiple clips of people screaming and like heathcliff who is blonde once again yeah. like this weird like a misunderstanding of the story uh, on a motorcycle. And like, that's supposed to be like the bad boy <laughs> situation, but it like, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was way too of its time. And Wuthering Heights is actually a timeless piece of literature. It, it really, for what, I, you know, like it is, yeah. it just is what, and it's like in the same way that Jane Eyre is like really timeless. And, but I, I can't, I don't really know what, why that is. Yeah. But the MTV adaptation seems like it's just too, it's like reverse nostalgia. Like I don't have, it's like, I don't know, yeah. drinking drinking medicine when you think you're getting Kool-Aid or something. Did you, um, do you want me to read you some screenshots from the IMDb yes. <laughs> message board before they close them for the MTV Weathering Heights? These are courtesy of uh, my boyfriend. Thank you. <laughs> who has had them for many years, saved. So it's from February 10th, 2009 by Kay Freya. Isabella's character, three exclamation points. Okay, in the movie, Isabel is a bitch and totally obsessed with Eve. Is she the same in the book? The answer is kind of, yeah. But um, <laughs> they're telling her no, whatever. This sucked, but the house that Edward and Kate lived in was awesome. So you care about the opinions of a woman whose pet peeves are sobriety and kindness. Unclear what that means. (laughs) After watching the Lifetime version of this movie, I now want to see this one. I would kill to see the Lifetime version. 
There is a lot of references to how I met your mother, surprisingly, in these comments. Um, how do you modernize Wuthering Heights? Here, this is directly to yours. Great. Wait, after hunting for after hunting for a properly filmed version of Wuthering Heights, which is like trying to find a needle in a haystack, MTV goes ahead and screws it up by trying to modernize it so the great big lump o lazy bones who are too stupid to read it themselves can understand it more. I have never seen this film, nor do I plan to, because I refuse to be insulted by another disgrace of a cast. As if Juliet Binoche wasn't bad enough as Kathy. <laughs> no, no, Erica I love Christians Juliet. I was like, who? Come on, it's Julia Binoche. Chill out. Erica Christensen has to beat her up too. They wrote in their own beep. To be honest, <laughs> I love Wuthering Heights. I do. I've loved it since I was 14, and I've actually been on the hunt for a properly cast version of the film, as well as my very own Heathcliff. Ooh, you're going to die. But what I'd like to know is how the hell these morons can modernize such a classic tale. When at the time that the book was published, people were allowed to marry their cousins. Yeah. How do they deal with that when the bloodlines are so important in the plot? And then it ends with a quote. Where have all the good vampire movies gone? Oh my God. Okay. Um, so that was from Kitty Grimm. Um, I think we need to get Kitty Grimm on the pod. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think that the sort of culminating question is like, how did we get from Wuthering Heights to Twilight? But first, I'm wondering, so I was searching for the Wuthering Heights Lifetime movie trailer. Oh, no. And... Um, <laughs> Did you find it? Well, okay. So if all of those mess, those comments were from 2009. Yeah. Okay. So I think Lifetime has adapted Wuthering Heights many, many times because there's like many. Uh, I'm going to try and find some. Why don't I share my screen? Well, there's from 2007 and 2009. It looks like that period. So you can see... Uh, Mary is seeing my screen right now. So there's The Wrong Boyfriend, which is an update. Also set in, in Malibu. Yeah. Why? There's also Wuthering High School. Oh, no. Um, Lifetime's Wuthering High. But so these were all made in 2015. So that's why I'm like, what? Like, if where is the 2009 version? Oh, my Lord. This looks pretty good. Weathering, oh my gosh. Yeah, Weathering High School is, um, Lifetime took the plot to a literal high school with its new original movie, Weathering High School. The title directly references the Bronte novel. Why so would you call it Weathering High? Yeah, Why would just you call like it Weathering High School. God. But, um, oh, there's. Oh. Ray Fine and Julia Binoche. I saw a little clip. Um, but okay, so I'm trying. So I want to find the trailer, and we can like watch it in real time, and then who knows if it'll get <laughs> edited in. <laughs> um, well, maybe. Oh, a Wuthering Heights adapt all Wuthering Heights adaptations ranked. Thanks. 
Oh yeah, the black and white film, okay. <laughs> the last one coming in last is Weathering High School, 4.0. Um, Weathering Heights 2003, the MTV movie. Two thousand eleven. Interesting. Forgoes any emphasis on the romantic in favor of a focus on the rougher elements of the story. That is uh, interesting. Oh, Whoa. this is this is the Heathcliff is actually played okay. by. Yeah. Things are considered too rough for some who felt that the film might have benefited from paying closer attention to the more romantic traditional elements of the novel. Well, that's interesting because you had brought that up too. That like is this novel completely sexless which it is explicitly yeah there's I mean, like obviously like people are reproducing so there's obviously sex but there it's it's pretty sexless and so it's interesting that this would this 2011 version at least according to this whoever according to imdb people don't like it because there is no romance which is like it's barely in a book it's not like you see heathcliff and catherine like really together in any romantic sphere. Um, sometimes they hug and I think they kiss at one point, but that's right. it. And that's like when she's dying. Right. Um, and, and there's really no mention, not like that I expect these, these books written at this time to have like explicit sex scenes, but that like, if you compare it to Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre is, is very horny. Yes. Like Rochester, like, you know, there's a very assured subtext in that book of like, that these people have very romantic sexual feelings for each other. Yeah. And that's not in this book. And maybe it's because again, it has this two person narrator, but it seems like for like sort of a romance, there's really none of the romance. Yeah. Just the yeah. obsession. Just uh-huh. And I guess like there's also, so in the same way that sex is sort of implied by the fact that there are offspring, it's right. also kind of implied because like just by the fact that like Catherine and Heathcliff are usually off hanging out alone all the time. Right. And so I guess there's That's like true. there's like an implication, which I think is is brought out in these um in the film adaptations where like there's probably a little bit more like I, I feel like there's definitely with the Ray Fine one, there's like uh they like go behind the house and like they're making out or whatever. They're like in the stables making out. And so like, so that's sort of like left out of the book, but assumed. Yeah. There is um, one long held theory by some people that the lack of sex in the book is actually because Kathy and Heathcliff are related, um, mm. which is not directly said in the book mm -hmm. at all. But the assumption being that, you know, where did their dad, uh, the Earnshaw oh. father, find this child and why did he take him in? And the mm. theory being like that it's his, it's his child. So that maybe they're half siblings. Yeah. Um, which kind of goes together because Earnshaw does bring this child in and it's like really random. They're like, where did you, where did you come from? And he doesn't really give them an explanation. Um, so that is part of it, is that, that they're half siblings. And so therefore 
it would be incest Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. they did have a relationship. But people also then from there um, draw on, actually I feel a little bad saying this because I think this tends to happen with uh, women writers more than it happens with others. And it certainly happens with the Brontes a lot, um, was that this was actually sort of the relationship between Emily Bronte and the brother Bronwell Bronte. Whoa. Um, and that being because like, <laughs> no. uh, so there's, there's three Bronte sisters who live to adulthood. They're all writers. They all end up being published authors. Obviously they're Charlotte, Janair, uh, Emily, and then Anne Bronte. Bronwell is, um, one of the Bronte siblings, he's the only boy, and he he dies right before, Emily dies just a few months after him. Um, uh, Bronwell is, I guess, a, a sort of tragic figure. He like deeply alcoholic and a lot of, um, oh, seems very like a sad figure from yeah. the writings. But I think supposedly the Bronte sisters all like, you know, in letters and diaries and stuff that they have of them, um, very obsessed with Bronwell. Um, <laughs> weirdly so yeah. is the assumption, but Charlotte, or sorry, Emily has, is the like reclusive sister. So there's like barely any letters by her. There's really just not that much stuff that people have as like, and she also died pretty young, um, as opposed to Charlotte, who has tons of letters and tons mm-hmm. of journals and also wrote about her other sisters mm-hmm. you know, later mm-hmm. on. Um, so Emily gets painted as kind of the weirder one, um, also because she wrote Wuthering Heights. Uh, <laughs> and Wait, her sister- Wuthering, the publication of Wuthering Heights like made her weird? Like that- Not, the, not the publication, it's just be, like the, the text the itself. Okay. Yes. Um, to the point where three years after she died, they reissued it under her name this time rather than the male pseudonym. Um, and- Charlotte edited it and she changed around some of the spellings and the paragraphs. And then I think Joseph, the um, servant who has like a dialect that yeah. they, but she like made that, tried to make that clearer. Huh. People, you don't usually use her version because it's like, it seems to be not what Emily would have huh. done. Anyways, but even with that, Charlotte like writes it forward that's like, yeah. My sister was weird. Um, the stuff she says about God in here, like, don't take it too seriously, okay? And, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, is it because, like, and, and is that, like, the like the existence of ghosts and stuff? I think it's so, like yeah. Anti, Anti-Christian? Yeah, exactly. And um, she also, she has this phrase that she describes her as, like, she describes Emily as stronger than a man, simpler than a child. What the? <laughs> Which I think is supposed to be a compliment. And you're just like, what? Um, but <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, so Emily is sort of, um, you know, she dies right after Bronwell, I think. There's like, there is connected to the point, actually, I would love to read some of these things to you. <laughs> um, the amount of adaptations or just stories made on supposedly Branwell and Emily's relationship Whoa. are like baffling. 
Um, and there is no, definitely no actual proof that they- People have just written Bronte fanfic. Yeah. yeah, there's a ton. There's so much. It's like wild. So I'm going to read some of this to you. This is from uh, an article with seemingly no author. Oh, by a Amber Vlot. Uh, for the conversation. But um, it says, in some of those texts, Bronwell and Emily's relationship is sexually abusive. In Ella Morehouse's Stone Walls from 1936, for instance, Bronwell tries to force a knife and bottle of liquor into Emily's mouth. In others, it's loving and supportive. Clement's Dane's play, Wild December's, from 1932. I don't know what was happening in the 30, but the 30s, but these are all from the 30s. Um, of these obsessions with Emily Bronte, features a fictional Bronwell indulging in a masturbatory fantasies while looking at his sister. But he also supports Emily's writing and collaborates with her to bring Wuthering Heights, their symbolic child, into the world. There are a number of texts that simply revel in the salaciousness of imaginary sibling love too. In Catherine Jean McFarland's Divide the Desolate from 1936, again, Emily and Bronwell engage in a form of childhood S&M play. Oh my God. With Emily delighting in the fact that her brother cares enough to hurt her. While Emily and George Rameau's The Brontes from 1931 features an extended erotic fantasy in which Emily pulls Bronwell from his burning bed and against her body while wearing a translucent wet nightgown. <laughs> Oh my gosh. What? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I do think some of it is like, there's always the love of a theory that Bronwell wrote some of this or that he inspired this, like, because I think Emily is the reclusive one, especially I think that comes in. Um, like where'd she get these ideas? That kind of thing. So it does seem like inherently sexist, but it's also bizarre. Anyways, yeah, there you go. There's the incest of Wuthering Heights. <laughs> and so, and yeah, that seems like a very um, uh, explored theory as to why it's a sexless, it's a yeah. sexless book. I know. And because in real life, the sex was too taboo, I guess. Yeah. And well, and like, even if it, even, yeah, it's just like Emily and Bronwell probably yeah didn't engage sexually yeah. and so and so then like Heathcliff and Kathy like also don't engage sexually if it's right. if it's if you go along with the belief that it's based on them right um interesting oh sorry <laughs> I, I didn't realize that there was like fanfic about the Bronte family there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot there's like there's a lot written about the Brontes, which is kind of interesting. I think because yeah. they're sort of, we're a secluded group. Yeah. Um, that kind of grew up just among themselves out in the country. What, um, <laughs> there's also like, uh, I'm just thinking about like vampire, vampire novels and like that whole um, mystery. It seems to be that like, that like, uh, death and ghosts and uh hauntings um but then there's also like that all adds 
it's like part of this recipe to create like overarching mystery, which is like what is yeah. important in Gothic literature and like, and also why like Wuthering Heights, I don't know. I do think that Wuthering Heights is kind of timeless. Um, and so is Jane Eyre, so is Dracula, like all of these. Um, but like, I also think that like Gothic literature is, uh, Gothic literature is the genre is like the true, what is actually timeless. Right. Um, yeah, not, I think not individual stories. Yeah, it's like this this shared um, theme, the shared themes, ways yeah. of telling stories. Because I think it, Dracula too is right. It's epistolary, so yes. again, there's like a lot of removal. Yeah, um, yeah. You're getting and, you're getting it told from. Um, is it Jonathan Barker? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's from his diaries, and so and again, yeah. like Dracula is the is the hero anti-hero, mm -hmm. that that's the center of gravity. But then you're getting it, you're getting the story from the person who's like the observer who happened to, um, happened to to get in on that. Different from Twilight, though. That's different from, like Twilight yeah. is sort of is I can't. It's Bella who's the narrator, right? Yeah. I'm trying to remember actually, if, I think it's first person, but it could be a close third. Yeah. Cause, but it's Bella who's the mm -hmm. perspective. And cause definitely like, I think in the movie, she's sort of like narrating it, right? Yeah. 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 I'm, 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 at, I'm like seeing it now. She gets out of her car with her little cactus. With the cactus. <laughs> it's like, I'm in Forks, Washington now. It's not Arizona anymore. I have a cactus, um, <laughs> but she is narrating that part. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how did we get to, how did we get <laughs> from Wuthering Heights to Twilight? Well, I think there is a century of romantic ghost stories basically that are told or romantic Gothic stories that are told um, that sort of cement Wuthering Heights as the beginning, well, as a, a forefront of this mm -hmm. kind of genre. But I do think, yeah, Wuthering Heights is a ghost story, basically. Yeah. Um, and so you, but then you, it's it's a romance. Um, so you have them like intertwined into one. And, and, uh, and it's always, yeah, the, these the narrators who like come upon these sites mm -hmm. are just sort of like this place is haunted. <laughs> like, what have I just like stepped into? And same with Jonathan Barker, who's like, is this dude living? And like, and and also like Dracula's mansion is also like haunted with right undead. And you, you often get trapped there. Yeah, to yeah. either by like force or by mysterious, either by human force or mysterious yeah. forces. Yeah, you get trapped. Right. And Jane Eyre is also like, she's, even though she, Bertha is alive, she's also, right. she's kind of the ghost since she's being um, intentionally kept away. Right. And like, you only get um, certain glimpses of her in a very spiritual light. But, yeah. um, but so, so it, and then, and then the vampire movies and the vampire stories, it's vampires are like, I wonder to make the leap from a ghost, someone who is mm. dead, to someone who is undead. <laughs> and um, like what, I guess, I get, do people just like wanna have, are people just like horny for ghosts? <laughs> like, 
undead people? Like that's, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe the thing is, is that like, um, romance, like the idea of a romance following you after death, that might be like this ultimate, um, declaration of love. And that's why it's so romantic. That's why it's kind of timeless. That's why people, um, are really just into it because they like Gothic literature and like, and like a lot of these romance stories these romantic stories it kind of is like it's the author is like how can I express how much these people loved each other while the love gets expressed across time and space across death like death can't conquer it kind of thing yeah Um, and yeah and then like similar I mean like that that's more so applicable to ghost stories where there's like Catherine actually haunts Heathcliff at his beseeching. He's like, haunt me and you're like, come back. Um, Whereas like with vampire movies, that doesn't really play out because vampires are undead, but you still get this like sacrifice for love with um, like in Dracula, Mina Mm -hmm. martyrs herself. Well, I don't know if that, I I can't remember if that actually happens, but. Well, interestingly though, in uh, the Francis Ford Coppola version, which I know is a lot different from, (laughs) well, in some ways is a lot different from the book. Um, he does make it a love story right it's Dracula and his he like gives a backstory of Dracula um and his one true love who is Mina yeah and then he sees Mina again and it's like oh here you are (laughs) fate has brought us back together yeah you know um and that's how he becomes also a vampire it's because they kill his one true love I don't know it's a yeah. complicated story, but I think that's interesting that around, you know, 2000, uh, you start getting back into these paranormal romances or yeah. to these gothic, I guess paranormal romance a little different, but into these gothic romances and things like retelling Dracula right around that time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. get into directly a romance between yeah. multiple people, um, but with, the Byronic hero villain as, you know, part of it. Um, And then you also get the beginning of Twilight. Twilight. (laughs) Just a few years later. And Um, he's also making a sacrifice. There's also like a big, like, love will conquer anything kind of thing where he like doesn't, he doesn't eat Bella. (laughs) But he wants to so bad. Right. There is also, yeah, this thing of like, it's faded, but it's painful for me to be near you. Yeah. And uh, again, very sexless because. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Twilight is not, there's, there's zero sex until they like, until they get married. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Whoa. Okay. So yeah, that seems to be like sort of the formula is like, obsession not necessarily in the in there's like obsession that like is it love is it not that's kind of like debatable based on who's interpreting the story this like obsessive faded connection that is really painful but keeps getting indulged mm-hmm. there is a notable absence of sex and um and the, and like overtones of like death and sadness and mystery and that seems yeah. to be the the formula 
and for some reason, I, and I know you mentioned this earlier too, an incredibly wealthy hero. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know why that needs to be like a huge part of it, but it is, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, Edward Cullen is also wealthy. Dracula's wealthy. Yeah. Um, is Miss, Mr. Rochester has like a huge estate. Yeah, he's wealthy yeah. as well. Yeah, he's like the heir to lots. And I guess, I mean, this this explains like all the 19th century literature. It doesn't explain Edward Cullen, but like I always think <laughs> of it as like in the 19th century that like the industrial revolution is occurring. You have like capitalism, like in its truest form is happening at that time. Um, and and so I, it's, it's present even in non-Gothic literature. Like it, like Bleak yeah. House is about like a will and testament and right. um, money comes into the plot a lot with in Dickens, but yeah, yeah in these like love story, <laughs> in these love stories, like the, the Byronic hero is always wealthy. Whoa. Um, yeah. Or if they like maybe also have, you know, with like Heathcliff, like a, uh, lower class beginnings, they um, manage to secure wealth. And, it's like, it's yeah. it's the propaganda for sort of capitalism, I guess. Yeah. That yeah. I, in that atmosphere. Now I can only, I'm like, we'll get into it more for the Twilight <laughs> episode, but just thinking uh-huh. like, I've checked, Twilight came out in 2005, the book. Okay. Um, the movie in 2008, which was a very interesting time in the United States, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, well, I guess that wraps up <laughs> this first, this first episode. episode. We talked which about Wuthering Heights. <laughs> yeah. But we have a few more episodes this season exploring um, sort of the legacy of romantic gothic literature. Um, we're gonna get a little more into the Brontes, a little bit more into like mid-century connection and then into Twilight. <laughs> Which I mean, look, all the movies are now on Netflix, so. Yeah, I guess, I yeah. I never, I think I read all of them. I never watched the last two movies. Oh, you got it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I stopped reading, I think, in the middle of the third one because I could not take another description of Edward's eyes. You know, I'm surprised. His amber eyes. <laughs> we get it. I'm surprised that, like, I got through um, New Moon. Well, I guess, I guess she, she's just like so pained. She's like Catherine, like yeah. Bella is yes. just like Catherine where she's just like, I might die if I, and she like stars herself. She's just like, I might die if Edward doesn't come back. I'm surprised that I got through that, but I guess it's just like a bunch of blank pages to like signify time passing. <laughs> and then, the, and then in the film, it's the likely song. <laughs> yeah, with the window. The great oh, movie. For every brooding Byronic hero, there is also, there's a sad boy narrator, and then there's also, like, a feeble woman on the brink of death. Yes. God forbid a woman survives a breakup. Um, Impossible. <laughs> according to those authors. Yeah, okay, well, cool. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> ah, thanks, Bethany. <laughs> <laughs>